We are speaking about social impact, corporate social responsibility and sustainability with Sridhar Vembu. He is the CEO of Zoho. I'm really glad to be back, Michael. Thanks for having me back. Tell us about where you're situated, where you're located right now. I'm located in a small, tiny village about 400 miles, about 40 kilometers, 650 kilometers outside of Chennai, which is uh, the major metro area in the southern part of India, about the same distance from Bangalore as well. And a tiny village and a hamlet almost, and that's where I am right now. As we talk, I definitely want to hear about why you're there, and I think that's central to, to our conversation. But tell us about Zoho, and tell us about your role as CEO of Zoho. Zoho is a, what we call the operating system for business. It's a cloud-based suite of applications that provides you everything from CRM, the front office, back office, collaboration, productivity, mail, chat, and HR, accounting, financials, meeting software. So it's a full suite. Uh, we started out primarily in the small business. Now we have moved up to, to larger enterprises as well in the last five years. And, and it's now about 50 million users registered worldwide and more than 500,000 paying customers, uh, organizations. So that's the snapshot of Zoho and about 9,000 employees. Your focus at Zoho has shifted over time. Uh, where are you focused right now, primarily? There's two aspects to it. The product side, we are moving towards a fully integrated suite we call Zoho One, which launched a couple of years ago and it's gaining strength now. And the trend in the cloud is towards consolidation of all these applications towards broader suites. That is happening all over, and, and we are very much uh, leading that charge now on that. And from the company side, about uh, uh, more than a year ago, actually, I decided that we will shift our uh, focus towards more rural location in terms of our offices, where our facilities are located. In fact, that happened pre-pandemic. It actually had, the decision had nothing to do with the pandemic, though the pandemic has just accelerated all those moves. For example, we actually had our, even our Austin office, we bought a farm and we were going to move a lot of our facilities to the farm. And the same thing with uh, in India and same thing we are doing in Mexico. And we are doing it in Germany. We are doing it in Japan. Everywhere we were going to uh, essentially do a reverse migration from the major metropolitan areas to smaller towns and, and even small villages. So that was the plan. Why? What was the purpose of that? Actually, there's multiple purposes, and I, I'll list one by one. And first, I felt that the major urban areas around the world, this is true about San Francisco, it's true about Bangalore, it's true about Chennai, and it's true about Mumbai, all of them, they all have become super expensive cost of living wise, right? And which means that if you bring a new employee into San Francisco or in, or in Mumbai, you are actually now they are at a serious disadvantage to people who are already there. And if they had not bought any real estate, the new employee would not have bought, they are going to be in trouble for a long time. They cannot afford anything. And this has a meaningful you know, effect on their quality of life, their very 
perception of uh, their milestones, they cannot form a family easily, all of those issues come up. Once somebody puts down roots in an area, they would want to form families, all of that. The Bay Area is too expensive for most people to do that now. And I felt that this, is, this doesn't have to be. Cloud technology already enables us to work from anywhere. Then why do we insist on working in that one square mile radius, right? So that was the, one of the uh, uh, decisions. And from the other side, I noticed pretty much around the world, and this is true in India, and this is true in the US, the talent pool we are drawing from smaller towns. We are sucking the talent pool and sending them into the major metro areas, either New York Metro or the San Francisco or LA. But the talent pool could be coming from Kansas or Colorado or, or wherever, right? And, and this is, I felt that this type of what I call topsoil erosion, the talent as the topsoil, is not good for culture, it's not good for national well-being, all of that. You need to have balance. You don't want to concentrate talent, wealth, all of that in one place, too few places. So in order to distribute it, you have to distribute the talent itself, which means companies like us have to play a role in where we locate our, our employees. So that was the second reason. So there was a cost of living, then there's a talent uh, topsoil erosion, preventing that. Those are the two major reasons, really. Certainly, there are two aspects to what you just described. Number one is simply the there's a practical business aspect of talent and talent availability at a reasonable cost for Zoho. And at the same time, clearly, there's a social social dimension where it, it appears you're thinking beyond the the narrow interests of Zoho. Yes. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So that's correct. And, uh, you know, in this case, the social dimension and the business dimension actually coincide remarkably well. If our employees can afford to live uh, on, a, on, on their uh, income well, then they can also be pillars of their community. Their own needs are taken care of. Then naturally, there will be more voluntary work. A lot of things will benefit in the broader community. On the other hand, if they are on this treadmill where they are constantly worried about their own future, they cannot really be contributing to their communities. They kind of become you know, more self-centered. They have to be. There's no other way. So in that sense, I felt that just distributing the talent to smaller towns and, and locating our facilities there automatically causes a lot of other good things to happen. And people will do, for example, some people, we encourage people to get into organic or natural farming and uh, so that they become more rooted in their uh, soil. We have uh, told people to volunteer in their communities, maybe in education, training, skill development, all of that. Because there is, of course, when we go to a place, there's local talent that if it's some training could be employees for us. Our own employees could play a vital role in bringing the talent to the surface, exposing the talent. And that actually is not only beneficial to the company, this also benefits the employees who are doing this kind of work because they get a real kick out of it. It's like a psychic energy they get out of this kind of activity. Right? It feels good. It really does feel good. So that, those are the reasons, really. Sridhar, this 
approach to uh, both business and broader well-being. Well, broader well-being in a way we could call philanthropy. That's the traditional term. And this is very different from traditional philanthropy because usually what happens is somebody has a certain amount of money, they run their business, they form a foundation, and the foundation writes checks. This is quite, quite a very different approach. This is a different approach, very different. And that's, I'll, I'll explain why I actually don't particularly believe in that model, that just writing checks model. Because it's, it's the, the problems of places like these are just not merely money. It's about attention. It's about talent retention. It's about people who, have, who care about their communities, people who are rooted. In other words, you, you cannot fix a lot of these problems by just writing checks, however big those checks may be. And I felt that by putting our own facilities, our own employees in these places, we could actually play a vital role. And, and that's actually why I don't consider this traditional philanthropy at all. And there is a precursor to it. We actually have this thing called Zoho University. Like we now call it Zoho Schools of Learning. And, and this program has always taken high school graduates and put, us, put them through our own training program. And for a year, year and a half, we actually pay them to attend this. We pay them a stipend. And at the end of this, if they finish it successfully and they go through some a battery of uh, sort of uh, projects and all of that, evaluate them. And almost 90, 95% of them do finish. They get absorbed into the company as employees for time. And that program, we don't actually call it a philanthropy. Even though we pay the students, we invest in them, all of that. And the reason for that is, if you look at it over a five-year period, those employees become very valuable to us in terms of their skills, the extra skills they've gained. They become really major assets to the company. So in effect, there's also an investment going on. But if you look at it from that perspective, here's a company that came in and invested in them, and they did not have the skills. So they look at the company as doing some you know, philanthropic or charitable work. But in reality, we are also investing in them because they will actually be really valuable for us in four or five years. So both are true. Both are true. You look at both dimensions. You're trying to exactly integrate this social impact, sustainability approach with uh, the traditional profit-making business. Correct. And in fact, I don't believe that there should be any separation at all. Because if we conduct our profit-making operations, unmindful of the social consequences, and then guilt trip ourselves into writing big checks for the social impact things, that's never going to be good because our, our business life and our philanthropic life don't mesh together well. And that duality, that separation itself causes a problem. And I, I actually don't believe in it. I think it has to be holistically integrated. Your business activity and doing good to society have to go together. Is there a conflict between these two that you see at all? At least in my point of view, there is no conflict. Because when you actually conduct your business in a kind of ruthless manner where you don't take care of your communities, all of that, that business does have a built-in expiry date. Maybe employees, maybe the community. There's always a built-in resentment. And I'm a, I'm a believer in this law of karma or, or cause and effect, really or really in English, what goes around comes around. If you are not holistically taking care of your employees, your customers, your communities, you're going to reap what you sow. It's going to happen. So 
it's not even good in a long term perspective long term meaning here maybe a 20 25 year 30 year perspective so only in the very short term say if your perspective is 5 years or 7 years or to an exit maybe you can get away with this behavior but if you intend to be a long term corporate citizen you really have to be a citizen and you have to take part holistically in your community so there really is no contradiction from where i sit i think from the popular perspective there is a disconnect because we we yeah. don't see these two parts integrated together right. and how how have you overcome that it starts with how we hire people so we look at hiring uh, differently than most companies do for example i i always say that we prefer to hire people to whom our existence will make a vital difference in their life so what i mean by that is see many companies chase after that one person or or headhunt heavily where there's one person who's who has some seven competing offers they want to add an eighth competing offer that's very common right this go talent hunting that way we actually say that you know that's it's actually detrimental to all the well-being of everyone really because even the person with the seven offers doesn't really appreciate the eighth offer that much they don't particularly care and so instead why not actually take people to whom your existence makes a difference and our finding is that there is a lot of talent that does not get an opportunity because people won't take a chance on them they won't really you know uh, be willing to take a chance and business is all about risk taking keep in mind that we have we seem to have forgotten that business is all about risk taking and we have to take a risk on people too because that's an essential part of our business and that's what we do really ragul tg says Moving the workforce from urban centers to rural areas may prevent them from accessing other facilities such as educational institutions for their family uh and other types of arts whatever it might be basically the advantages of cultural centers yeah. what's your take on that I mean I am in a remote village in India even here There do exist educational facilities within maybe a five ten mile radius, and, and there is even a hospital, a decent one within about a fifteen mile radius. So it's not like it's completely devoid of all those. And there are some cultural and artistic facilities. And actually, the way I say it to our own employees, for example, we have next week a cultural program going on right in this village. We put that together, and the kids here are enacting a kind of a play. so these kinds of things we can do it we can bootstrap we are all there is there's artists and there is actors there's all that musicians inside us a lot of us right so we can do this cultural things ourselves and it's not necessary that i mean this again goes to that idea that i'm not a big believer in this mass consumed culture culture has to come from within and and locally what is produced is is culture too and that's the part that i encourage our own employees to put together and, and along with the community members Are you through your social impact efforts imposing your personal views that then have this impact on your employees and also on the surrounding communities? Absolutely. There there is there's definitely some truth to that, but that's inevitable, right? If you are in a leadership position, your views do end up influencing your organization. That's inevitable. Uh, for for good or bad, I mean, for both good and bad, right? it's never true that you have a, a really strong leadership and that leadership doesn't uh 
end up actually doing something to that organization in terms of their influencing the view. So it's always going on one way or the other, right? So in this case, our employees actually are, uh, they, they only stay here if they agree broadly with these views, right? Most people that select themselves into, I actually believe in these things. I don't believe in these things. And if they don't believe in these things, they tend to leave early on. And which works out great for them too, right? This is, this is how it should be, really. <laughs> no, you make, a, you make a good point. So there's a, certain, there's a certain type of culture and values that exist inside the company and you want to find people and people want to work at hopefully companies that uh, match their own values. There could exist a company that believes in the opposite of everything I believe. <laughs> and that could be very successful. Okay? They just have a very different culture. So this is not to say there's only exactly one way here. That's my way. I'm just saying you got to pick one way and stick to it. And people who like that way come to you. That's how I, I think about it. We have a very interesting question from Arsalan Khan on Twitter. And Arsalan is addressing this cultural aspect. He says that the it seems that the definition of corporate social responsibility is changing, evolving over time, and now really must involve employees at the individual level to be a part of it. And it seems like that view corresponds precisely with what you're trying to do at Zoho. That's exactly right, actually. I, I, that's why I said it's not just about writing checks. It's also about active participation. In fact, as we open these rural centers, I've told the managers in these rural centers and the, and the employees, I said, I expect each of you over the next three to five year period to become anchors, pillars of your community, and someday even perhaps run for local election, local in your village, in your little town. You have to play a, an active uh, role in your civic affairs too, while being employees here, right? I expect you to do all these because that's how you actually have a holistic, full dimensional life and that's going to enrich you. That's going to enrich the company. Your experiences are going to be valuable to us too. So it's not just the, the corporate responsibility you have here, but it's also a broader community responsibility. We have a comment from LinkedIn. You can tell I, I really like taking the comments and the, the questions. Very often they're just, they're just great. And INRR says he is a placement officer from and I won't even try to pronounce the name, Polytechnic College, uh, Salem Tam Tamil Nadu, Zoho, U and he says, Zoho University is doing great work in the Polytechnic of out, uh, in placing outgoing students. He wants to mention that 10 of their students have successfully completed Zoho University training and are currently working at Zoho as software engineers he says all the selected candidates are from rural backgrounds and have extraordinary talent. And he says, I am so grateful to you, sir. Thank you. Really appreciate this. This is really, I'm so glad to hear this kind of a, kind of a report from the ground. You know? I'm so glad because that means whatever we are doing is really working. And I love that. Sridhar, what are the challenges that one faces that you faced in the course of adopting, developing, and executing this strategy? 
when you are really not successful yet, people would naturally question whether any of these things will actually work, right? That's, that's normal. People should be skeptical. I mean, any new effort is going to find both internal and external skeptics. And, and even if you are well-meaning, well-wishers, maybe friends and family could question whether your beliefs could really work or you're just, you know, believe in your own uh, idealist uh, visions, but without having a concrete reality, right? It's always true. So the way I promote those challenges is, I say, let's try a small experiment in this area. Let's not do something big, but let's do something small. Let's learn from this. And if the thing doesn't work, I'll admit that it doesn't work. If it works, let's scale it up. And that way, we have always actually, uh, we didn't you know, directly confront the challenge, but we kind of sidestep it by performing small experiments to resolve questions as we go. So that's how I always supported it. We have another question from Twitter, and this is from Rex. And Rex says, on the other hand, is what you're describing uh, in terms of employment, always a good thing because it's going to depress wages for Americans. Yeah, but you know, the world is a lot bigger than only America, right? There is going to be, uh, there is software market in India, there's software market in Vietnam, there's software market in Japan, all of these countries. And this, this question itself indicates that somehow there is a zero sum game where if somebody in India has a job, somebody in America does not have a job. That's not actually how economics works. Though lately, because of central bank depredations, all of that, it appears that way. But they're really, for example, if, if somebody in India has food, doesn't mean somebody else has to go hungry somewhere else. <laughs> we can both have food, we can both have jobs. So that's actually how I see it works. And we have another question from Twitter. And this is from Madan Babu. And he says, uh, what advice do you have uh, for young people who want to create a startup and also for engineering students who uh, about their future endeavors? I would say before you do a startup, ask yourself, why do you want to do it? I mean, what is your purpose in it? And if that is that I would want to make a quick money out of it, then think harder because it's not odds are low that you will make that quick Odds are low. I mean, you ought to accept that. That, that the headline success stories you hear are actually a very small minority of the startups. Vast majority of startups struggle for a long time. So on the other hand, if you actually want to solve a problem and you have some passion, be prepared for the long haul. Even if you take off in the short run and you achieve grand success, it's the, the correct way to bet is that, no, that may not happen, and I may have to be stuck to stick to this long haul. And that is how I'll advise. So have a long-term uh, dream about this and go about it. Maybe you will achieve short-term success too, but don't count on it. That's how I think. Let's take another question from Twitter. I always give priority to the questions from Twitter and from LinkedIn. And this is from Viraj Shah. How can we make development development more sustainable? That's a really important question. Actually, I, I think about it a lot. And uh, my own lifestyle after moving to this village has dramatically changed where, for example, I don't use air conditioning now and I'm perfectly comfortable here. 
still a little hot, but nothing that you cannot get used to with a fan. And you can also build buildings so that they naturally cool off. For example, we had traditional techniques we are reviving where you could cool buildings naturally without uh, using air conditioning. And similarly, I'm actually use bicycles a lot and use cars only on occasion when absolutely needed. So a lot of these things have made changes and these are easy changes to make personally, but I do believe that each of us have to think about this because it is extremely important now that the development growth, particularly in the Indian context, we, the world cannot afford India to become a China or the US in terms of emissions, all of them. I mean, with our population base, if we, our per capita emissions reaches any American levels or even Chinese levels, the, the world will be completely fried. So we have to have a sustainable development path around the world. So Americans have to cut down consumption. Chinese have to cut down consumption. This absolutely is, uh, is, uh, is the need of the world. What I find particularly interesting, Sridhar, about you is you, you're actually living it. You're not, you're not planted. I mean, you've, been, you've become extremely successful. You're not planted in Silicon Valley. You're in rural India, and you've given up air conditioning, I mean, just as one example. I find that very fascinating and unusual. That actually has a benefit. I used to suffer from asthma. And after cutting air conditioning out, actually now, now my health is much better. So there is a health reason for me to do it. But it's still, I, I wanted to give it up because also I felt that this is a more sustainable way. And, and there are natural ways to cool yourself. <laughs> but again, the model that, of social impact that you have is so different from the traditional philanthropy-based model yeah. where the benefactor is quite separate from yeah. the, the recipients. And in your case, there's, right. there's a mixing of the two. There is a mixing. That mixing is very common throughout in everything we do in Zoho. I'll give you a, a different example. I actually don't like that English word professional because to me, the word professional conveys a bundle of skills minus all the human personality, the blood and the emotion, right? You have to keep all that out of your job. But yet, I mean, someone like Steve Jobs was full of emotion, right? He would cry in meetings. I mean, how many CEOs would cry in meetings? We had Steve Jobs would cry in meetings. So he had that emotion. He had that passion. He brought to work. And we cannot separate the two. If we separate that, we will actually produce some optimal results. So to be a, a, an employee who comes in is a holistic whole person. They have their kids. They may have family. They have parents. All of those concerns do also play a role in the, how the company, how they perform in the company. And we have to take that into account holistically. So that is, that is an example. And I, I, that mixing is common in everything we do. So let me ask you a personal question. I hope you don't mind. How important is money to you personally? I actually spend very little money on myself. But money is important in the sense that if there is an important cost that I want to support, having money around helps me, allows me to spend that. As an example, we started the school here in this village. Uh, it's a free school and there is about 75 kids now studying it. We hired five teachers, all of that. I didn't just have to think about it. I just went and spent the money. That's where money is useful. So money is, the way I say it is money is a technology. Money is not a value system. How we use the technology is what matters. And that has to be governed by our value system. And the value system itself has to come 
prayer to money or independent of money you all have some values for you to make use of the technology called money i'm pausing just trying to absorb what you just said about money being a technology rather than a value system maybe please elaborate on that money is what is the exchange medium and it's a technology it's like money is like whatsapp in a way right we exchange messages we exchange money or goods and and it's, this is a old invention whatsapp is a new invention recent invention but money is a very old invention so we take it for granted but it still is an invention it's an invention right it, it came from somebody's mind <laughs> as a technology and that is very useful i mean the economy all over prosperity could not exist without that 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 technology called money but at the very same time an obsession for money indicates that it's like obsessing about the iphone or obsessing about your tesla car or something it's it's a really good technology but how much do you want to obsess about it right and it's useful certainly very useful but it still has to play a, there has to be a life beyond it for and, and then you make use of the technology to enhance that life money itself cannot create that life that's the common misperception right people think once i make money i'll be happy and most such people never find the happiness because if you are not happy to begin with before you made money you will not be happy after you made the money Well, in all honesty, one of the the main reasons that I enjoy talking with you is pretty much everybody says what you just said, but you're actually doing it and that's unusual. Uh we have another question from LinkedIn and this is going back to the organizational aspects of the of what you're doing. And this is from Kashyap Kampela. and he says uh zoho has been quite progressive in terms of not insisting on college degrees while hiring on the other hand many cus- many companies obviously do still insist on a degree even for entry level jobs and so his question is how can organizations move from quote credential signaling to skills based recruitment So in other words what's your advice for other organizations from an HR standpoint yeah i would recommend start small maybe take one division one department and move to a, a parallel hiring system which does not emphasize credentials just so much and evaluate your own yourself don't don't take our word for it evaluate yourself whether that works for you and then you scale up that experiment within your organization so that is what i would suggest people do and this way you you keep again the impact of your experimentation small and you don't have to seek a broad consensus across the organization to completely switch to a new system and you can take it one step at a time to what extent are the lessons at zoho transferable to other organizations uh zoho is kind of unique because you're you've been around for a long time you've been very successful and your ceo and your your private company and you own i don't know how much of the stock but probably most of the stock so how transferable are the lessons to other types of organizations i recognize that if uh, you know public companies companies that are have to report to external investors will face other pressures absolutely that's true so they don't they may not have the freedom we have and and the public company ceo certainly does not have the freedom i have in how i run my business So that's true. 
But having said that, we still can incorporate aspects of all these. For example, uh, the, the relaxing the credential requirements in hiring. That's not a very difficult thing to do. And we can conduct these experiments. Similarly, opening smaller rural centers, that's not very difficult to do. Again, you can do these things. And so it's not like you have to be all or nothing. You can do parts of it. You can do parts that work for you. So that's what I would say. Okay. Oh, and before I forget, subscribe to our newsletter. It's at the top. Click the subscribe button at the very top. Important, of, very important. Very important. Thank you so much, Sridhar. <laughs> All right. We have a question from Tim Crawford. He is one of the leading influencers of CIOs in the world. And he has been a guest on CXO Talk a couple of times. And Tim says, why do you think more companies don't focus on res social responsibility? And what can we do to get more focus, to bring more focus on this topic? Actually, some of it is just superstition, right? Some of it is the prior belief that uh, social responsibility and business performance don't go together. And that, see, you got to, I mean, let, let me tell you where I come from in this. Take this belief in credential, college degree and all of that, grades, all that. By now, there is considerable evidence, data, to prove that that credential is not all that relevant to the on-the-job performance. And yet, most companies stick to it because it's just that, you know, they've always done it that way. In a similar way, a lot of these things, new ideas, take a while to catch on because a generation of people grew up believing otherwise and they're not going to change their ways. They don't want to change. They're just too comfortable in a particular way of operating. So that's really the reason. And how do you do this? I would say target the younger generation because they don't have prior baggage, prior belief system. They may be able to do it faster. And we have another question from Twitter, and this is from Constant, Constance Woodson. And Constance says, is Zoho, quote, a compliance culture? Not really. Actually, it is a, Zoho is a very freewheeling culture inside where we have a lot of, uh, we have a thing called town hall or open house we have where people post anonymous questions of, uh, uh, of including uh, me. And that can be pretty freewheeling. We are very harshly critical of our own uh, efforts inside. I mean, employees are. And they could offer criticism of me and all of this. So it's it's a pretty uh, freewheeling culture. But at the same time, people do recognize we have something special in this company and we want to be part of it. So you will see that underlying current of, hey, we are really proud of being part of this company. But you have to, you know, we have to, uh, to be even better. So that's often the tone of the discussion. Any CEO is insulated, potentially at least, from the real concerns that employees have, and even even possibly Correct. that customers have. Correct. So you have the, the intent, and you say that you have at Zoho a free and open culture. How yeah. do you actually know? Basically, who I talk to, right? And we, our company actually has very few formal meetings for the organization. Because a lot of it is informal. And I'll give you an example. Today, uh, an employee visited me, and, uh, and he has been, you know, maybe three years in the company. And he just came over to say hello. He lives nearby, and he came over to say hello, and we spent half an hour. And he is not actually in anywhere sort of in my reporting hierarchies, like, you know, in team. There may be three or four levels between him and me. But he just came over to say hello, and we hung out for half an hour, and we talked and uh, all that. 
tomorrow an employee is coming on Saturday. Again, the same way. And she just pinged me on chat and said, hey, I'll come over and, and then let's just uh, talk about stuff. So that type of interaction, and they don't need an appointment. They just ping me on chat and say, can I come over and talk? And sometimes it's a call, phone call, because they could be remote. So, and then there's this open house anonymous question that gave you a flavor. In effect, we are running our own internal glass door, our own glass door inside. So a lot of issues get surfaced. And then you go, and if somebody reports an issue, and then you go around uh, talking to people, within very, you know, within two or three people, you discover what is going on, really. So there is that informal interaction going on at all levels, all the time. And I myself don't insulate myself behind a lot of corporate will. I actually am accessible to employees. Anybody could chat with me. And I'm also on Twitter. So customers, uh, support tickets, all of that I actually get to see. So if we are doing up something, odds are I'll know very quickly. How do you have the time? You're running this, this major company. How do you have the time to just have an open door policy? By running the company is that open door policy. There is no other running the company other than that. So that means that I don't actually uh, conduct too many formal meetings. We don't have a lot of these board meetings, the high-level meetings, strategy meetings, all of that. A lot of that happen on chat and, and, and all of that. But really, this informal interaction is the majority of my time, really. So, so when, you, when you said, how do you run the company and do this? Well, I run the company by doing this. <laughs> you must have very strong managers who handle the day-to-day -day operations because, as exactly. you said... Exactly. That that's critical. Absolutely critical. That's what, that's what actually is true. In fact, that is about... Uh, we have about 700 or so managers, and they are... I mean, 9,000 employees, and they are actually the foundation of that company and for the company. And, and with their active, without their active involvement and without their real day-to-day -day involvement, the company cannot run. Oh, and and I, I, I let them do their work without my undue interference. <laughs> when somebody says that to me, I wonder, what, what would the other folks say? Would they agree that it's hands-off? Would they agree? They would broadly agree, except when, when I want to get involved sometimes. They'll say, <laughs> yeah, he'll be hands-off until someday when he wants to get involved. But look, I cannot get involved in 200 projects. So I mean, get involved in a couple of projects. <laughs> We have another question from Josh Welsh. He asks, he would love to hear your favorite story from when you first started Zoho. My favorite story is customer. We signed a customer up in uh, 1998 or 1998, I think, yeah. And it was uh, one of our bigger deals at the time. And I was, uh, I was a salesperson and a uh, lot of roles on my shoulder because we were a tiny company. and. And I finished the contract with this customer. And after the deal is done, and he tells me, you know, I'll give you one advice. You are a lousy salesman. <laughs> this deal would have been worth 10 times to you if you had a proper salesman. You don't know how to sell your software. So one of the first things you should do, go hire a proper salesman. <laughs> and that's what he told me. Because he said, I got a great deal, but you're an idiot. So go find yourself a good salesman you can make 10 times the money on this software. So I did hire a salesman. That's one of my favorite stories. It seems to have worked out. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> can you provide a few examples of how Zoho is doing sustainable development? Sustainable has multiple dimensions. There's, of course, the green dimension, the environmental dimension, where, for example, all of our data centers now, now we are 
installing renewable energy, uh, solar, all of that to, to not depend on the fossil fuel energy. That's, that's one example. Our offices, all of that now, mostly now run on renewable energy. Solar, and in Indian context, even uh, solar and wind now, more and more, so both. And uh, the second dimension is sustainable from a human dimension where, for example, I mentioned that preventing the topsoil erosion. And in fact, this actually goes to even it addresses the green concern. I'll, I'll explain. When you move a person from a small town or a rural person to a city, the energy consumption actually goes up because they will live in a suburban day, commute, all of that. While their commute could be like a five-minute bicycle ride, now it could be a car or a bus or train or whatever. So infrastructure is needed, all of that. So there is that. The second is the urban areas are also ego or prestige traps. It very much matters what my neighbor wants so that I can do better. <laughs> While in rural areas, you don't have as many prestige traps for you. So your consumption naturally goes down. Automatically, you consume less. And then I've seen it in myself. I simply just don't have a desire to buy a lot of stuff. And I always had less desire than, but now I have even less after moving to a rural area. So that is sustainable too. So these are all actually factors that play into this. To what extent is Zoho a reflection of you as an individual, as a, as a person? There is a lot of uh, my personal, the way I conduct my life, my value systems, because actually we are blessed with employees who really love and respect me. So quite a lot of them trying to practice uh, you know, some of these ideas that I've mentioned. For example, I tell them, you are never going to achieve happiness by being in your ego trap, prestige trap, where you're competing with your neighbor or this or that. You're never going to be happy because there's always going to be somewhere. Maybe their kids study better. Their kids go to better schools or better colleges or whatever. Somewhere you're going to become short and you're going to feel bad about it. So quit competing. Quit being in the rat race. So those are the kinds of ideas that people do follow. So there is a lot of that uh, the philosophical element that animates the company. And we have another question from Twitter, and this is from Arsalan Khan again. Companies find it hard to measure and manage intangibles. Any tips or advice for other companies? I think this relates directly to, uh, the, to the culture. Try not to measure intangibles. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first advice I give, because there's a very reason it's intangible, because it's not measurable. And you're trying to come up with all this full... Uh, Pull that intangible by coming up with tricks. Well, people game metrics all the time. Okay, so you are you are going to have a situation where the very metrics you set up get gamed and you get counterproductive results. So, and how do you manage it? Well, you have to actually have create a system of trust, a system of respect, a system where people do take care of things like this without actually somebody watching over their shoulder all the time. And if you don't have that trust, and you substitute it with this measurement systems, metric system, you're going to create unhappiness in employees and stress in managers. And that's both are bad. So that's why I think there's no substitute for trust, building trust. Again, I'm, I'm pausing here because I recognize the difficulty in doing that, in developing, cultivating that level of trust, and then to run a business the size of yours without specific metrics in place that cover these dimensions seems very, again, unusual to me. 
we do have metrics like revenue and profitability and all of those productivity, all of those things that we can track, we do track. And, and our software, of course, is highly tracked, meaning the sense that we measure everything about the performance and all of that. So, so we actually do, do use metrics where it makes sense. Why we don't use metrics is when it comes to this human performance, what makes people tick. Those kinds of things, metrics are not useful at all. When we were talking earlier, you made a comment to me and you said, you know, I'm a business person. I'm not a monk. Oftentimes people assume, and this is actually a, this is the reason I say it is, you want to say, see that the way we operate is not some outlandish, otherworldly, monkish experiment. I'm very much a businessman and I still very much, you know, our business actually is growing and makes profit. We pay, take care of our employees and our customers, all of that. Well, we are very much in that sense of business. And, uh, and my point is, you don't have to be a monk. You don't have to withdraw from the world in order to do good, in order to be, you know, I, I, I do want to sort of avoid this whole, hey, somebody is saintly so they can do this, but not for me. That is actually not, not that's, that's the reason why I said I'm not a monk. I'm a regular person. And I, you know, I can get angry sometimes and I, you know, I, I have my, my flaws too. So that's why I think it is important that we actually, all of us can try to be better selves. And our business will be better because of that. Sridhar, as we finish up, what have you learned that's applicable to other organizations that other people can, can take away from this approach to business that you've executed with Zoho? I've been at this 25 years now. It's a fairly long inning already. And I'm still, you know, uh, in the universe willing, health willing, all of that. I still hope to go on another maybe 25, 30 years, however many years, I'm granted. So, and normally a lot of people in business will tell you the stress is killing me or I'm burnt out and I want to quit. And a lot of people say this. I've actually met founders who have sold their companies and they say, I'm completely burnt out. I just cannot think of anything else. Right and why does it happen? And then they ask me, how are you doing this for 25 years? And keep on going. That's actually the benefit of our approach where it's really when you create happy employees, happy customers, that my job is less stressful than it otherwise would be. So it might have been a slower pace, but it's much more durable. And so I, I can keep going. I don't have stress that many, many business people are afflicted with. So that is actually very important. And most important thing to me of all of this is that I, have, I can be at peace with myself. And what advice do you have to business people listening to, to this who say, you know, I really like the social benefit. I think that's great. At the same time, I don't want to adopt his philosophy. I like material things. I want more material things. I have no intention of changing, but how in my company can I adopt a more expansive, social, socially inclusive view? Material things are good. I mean, you know, going in a private jet or luxury car is, is better than the, the other experiences, right? Obviously, that's why people like them. <laughs> so it's objectively, it's better, right? <laughs> a nice car is better than a, a lousy car. So, but the point I'm making is the key to happiness is not just how many such goods we accumulate, right? There is a point at which people get satiated, right? You're not excited by that new car or a new jet after maybe three months. It's still actually, there's, this is really true. People have found this to be true. On the other hand, 
when you actually i i and this is seriously true for me when i go spend time with the kids and these are very poor kids from a, a very humble background and i spend time with them there's something mysterious that goes on that makes me happy happier as a person and i translate that happiness into work so being happy you know i'm i'm actually treating our employees better because i'm happier so and our and our customers uh, get a better software so that means actually it benefits our business too in a way so it is actually that, that so all i ask is find out what really makes you happy and do it and often you will find that that what really makes you happy is not a more luxurious car or or a bigger uh, house or whatever but it's also being of service to others being useful to others and that's what most experiments have found how has the pandemic affected zoho initially the first month maybe march we had a little bit of impact we saw after that it was uh, surprisingly little impact and our business has uh, done reasonably nicely and i i say this with some concern because i, I tell you why the world has split into two groups now those of us who work online and they call us the maybe the zoom tribe <laughs> if you if you want to put a name right and then those are people who work in the physical world and the income distribution now is such that most of the zoom tribe has suffered zero income erosion maybe have seen income growth actually while the people who work in with their logistics or restaurants or movie theaters and all of that often have seen a dramatic drop in income right and those people already were making less money to begin with and now they have seen a serious erosion in income so this has had the effect of the pandemic has had the effect of worsening the already existing inequalities in society which were already bad to begin with that was one of the burning political questions across the world not just the united states is inequality rising inequality and the pandemic has made that worse and we and this is this is one thing that uh, it's not sustainable we definitely have to fix this problem because the uh, the world cannot go on like this so that is my real concern but our business has done well so the post pandemic world has to be a more just one for all of us to be safe in it shridhar any final thoughts as we close up right now i would exhort people to explore this type of a life a rural life because a lot of a lot of people may actually like it i mean the open space in fact to be honest i don't feel like i'm making any sacrifice i'm gaining a lot of things uh, fresh air and a, a nice natural environment and surrounded by a lot of animals all of that so it's actually a lot of things i love about this and so it's not just i made some sacrifice to be here but, so and, and i would and i would urge a lot of other people to explore this possibility Well, this has been a very inspiring conversation for me and according to several people in the commenters on Twitter and LinkedIn who said the same thing. We've been speaking with Sridhar Vembu, who's the co-founder and the CEO of Zoho. Uh Sridhar, thank you so much for taking time to speak with uh, us. Uh, thank you. Everybody, thank you for watching. Before you go, please subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our very website. Important. Very important. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There you go. Everybody check out cxotalk.com and we'll see you again soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs>